Learn with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Today's episode will focus on safety analysis for learning robotic systems, which ensures that autonomous systems such as delivery drones can operate and learn in the physical world while satisfying safety regulations and requirements. Our interview Audro met up with Jamie Fijak, PhD student at UC Berkeley. His research focuses on developing analytical and computational tools to safely deploy robotic and AI systems in real-world environments. They discuss Fijak's project, a quadrotor learning to hover at a specified height. They also talk about the curse of dimensionality and how it impacts control, use of neural networks and simulations, what can be gained from leveraging control theory, and recent advances in machine learning. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Hi, thanks. It's great to be here. Would you introduce yourself? Yes. My name is Jaime Fisak, and I'm a final year PhD student at Berkeley working in robotics and control theory. Mm -hmm. And what motivates your work? I'm trying to look into how we can have robotics and autonomous systems that we can deploy safely in the world uh, and that are able to reason about their own safety. Mm -hmm. And why is it important for them to reason about their own safety? Well, it turns out that if you want a system to be able to competently operate in the real world, where there aren't going to be uh, perfectly specified constraints like the cage that an industrial robot might operate in, they're going to need to actively reason about what they know and what they don't know about their environments, where are the uncertainties that they don't understand, and which of those uncertain variables might pose a threat to the correct operation of your system. Gotcha. Now, this sounds very difficult, but why is it hard? Well, it's hard for a number of reasons. As it turns out, being able to provide safety guarantees, and normally by safety we mean making sure that a bad outcome is not going to happen. In order to be able to do this, you need to be really able to reason exhaustively about all the things that could happen. This is really hard in general. It's perhaps even harder because the things that might happen depend on the decisions that you make over time you the autonomous system in this case. So given that the number of options is so immensely large, in principle you could imagine an extremely exploding tree of possibilities that can be very difficult to analyze. Luckily there are some techniques that we know we can use, uh, like dynamic programming, uh, to reason about what the optimal thing to do might be over time if I knew what the next optimal thing would be once I get to the next stage. But unfortunately, even these techniques have limited scalability when we go into extremely large and extremely complicated environments. Because the tree gets so complicated? Because the tree gets so complicated. Different action choices and how they might impact the future? Exactly. And there's this uh, thing called the curse of dimensionality, which says that the more complex your system is, the more different actions that are available at every instant in time and the more possible states that you can reach, the, the worse the scalability of, of this problem. In particular, in continuous systems where you have multiple dynamical states, as the number of states grows, 
the complexity of the problem blows up exponentially, which means that we might be able to keep track of the system with, say, three or four continuous states. We might need to make an immense effort to get to a fifth or a sixth state. Because of the exponential of the blowing exponential, up. And being able to reason about a system with maybe 30 states might become completely intractable. It might be out of the question. And this is not a matter of, well, we'll be able to do it next year once we get some more, you know, power-ups in the, in the compute. Yeah. This might be out of reach for many uh, years and decades. So we clearly need to find some way of imposing some structure into our problems and being able to reason about them more efficiently. Gotcha. Would you tell me a bit about your actual your research, some of the projects you've been working on? Yeah. So um, throughout my PhD, I've primarily been focusing on what are different ways in which we can reason about safety. One of my first uh, projects had to do with uh, safety in learning systems. So if you have a system that is learning as it goes, say that you have a system that is running reinforcement learning. You have an autonomous vehicle that is learning how to drive or how to fly, um, and it's trying to improve its, policy, uh, improve its policy over time based on the experience that it... Uh, and a policy is something that takes its current configuration and has an action for it. So where it is, what it should do. A policy, exactly. A policy is a mapping from states, the to state actions. of the system, to actions. Where the system can decide a specific deterministic action that it's going to take, or it might decide uh, a probability distribution over actions. You can have stochastic policies mm -hmm. that will do different things from the same state with a well-defined probability. Now, in any case, a key question that arises when you're trying to come up with these policies is what are the properties that these policies can have? What can I say about the behavior of the system when it's going to run these policies, particularly if these are policies that it's learning in, to some extent, an ad hoc way as it goes? Mm -hmm. Because a system that is learning, if it's learning, it probably means that it doesn't have all the information that it needs. Mm -hmm. And that probably also means that... Um, and so we do okay. random actions at some time or something. Right. It can sometimes make incorrect decisions. Decisions yeah. that perhaps in retrospect, once it acquires much more information, like if, are clearly incorrect. Like if you're in a grid world and you have like lava, it could jump into the lava. Right. And only once you jump into the lava... Do you learn you should jump you, into it? Do you discover that it's a terrible idea to jump into the lava? So, of course, there's a difference between deploying systems in the real world and having them learn in simulation. There's a key difference, which is in simulation, you can it's perfectly fine to experience failure states or bad outcomes because you can always just reset and try a new episode. Mm -hmm. As a graduate student who's, has to work, who's had to work with physical platforms, I can tell you that entering a failure state, like having your drone crash into a wall, is not something that you want to do often. Uh -uh. You're going to have to go back and spend a number of hours repairing your system. And of course, this only gets worse when you start deploying learning systems on serious physical systems in the real yeah, world. You don't want to have a self-driving car that is going to be improvising as it goes and discovering whether it's a good or a bad idea to drive off the road. Mm -hmm. So, of course, there's a lot of pre-training that you can do in simulation, but at the end of the day, the real world will always uh, have new surprises in store for you, mm -hmm. and it will always have uh, new, th there will always be new ways in which you need to adapt your system. So the question as to how to adapt your system in a safe way, <clears throat> in a safe way, we think is very important. So one example that we, that we were working on was, say that you have a quadcopter that is trying to learn a good control policy to fly inside of a room. 
And to keep things simple, we're simply trying to learn a good vertical uh, flight control policy, where the system was trying to follow a vertical trajectory going up and down in a quick way, following the reference trajectory with as much accuracy as possible over time. So, you know, we would have it, you know, we would ask it to suddenly go and hover at a higher altitude or drop down to being near the ground but without hitting the ground. So in order to do this, the system would have to try different things to improve its policy. And using reinforcement learning, there are methods like policy gradient that allow you to make incremental changes to the parameters of your policy to try to do this in a better way. Now, unfortunately, if you don't have an explicit way to reason about safety, it might be that some of these parameters will actually not be safe. And this could lead, for example, to the quad rotor suddenly Some of the dropping. values of these parameters, you mean? Some of the values of these parameters might lead to unsafe policies. For example, yeah. they might lead to a policy that is very aggressive when it drops, and so if you tell it to go and hover near the ground, it'll actually drop completely and hit the ground, which, of course, is something that you don't want. Yes. So one possible way in which you can deal with this is by having uh, some sort of robust supervisory control policy, something that comes from perhaps an approximate model that you have of the system that is not going to be great for fine-tuning the performance of the system, but that might be good enough to reason with guarantees about the safety of your system. So make sure you don't crash your drone? Exactly. In this case, to make sure you don't crash your drone. It turns out that you can run some safety analysis. We use this uh, technique called Hamilton-Jacobi reachability analysis that says, given that I have some uncertainty about my system, uh, let's suppose that the uncertainty goes in the worst possible way. So basically, you're playing a differential game over time against Murphy's Law. You're saying the world is going to do the worst possible thing, my model is going to be incorrect in the worst possible way within some bounded error. Mm -hmm. And given that, I'm going to try to make my best possible effort to keep the system safe. If you compute the solution to that game using dynamic programming, you can come up with what we call the safe set. The safe set is a set of states, positions, and velocities in this case, from which the controller knows that if it applies a particular control law, it'll be able to keep the quadcopter from crashing into the ground or into the ceiling in this case. And it turns out that you're not, you don't need to use this policy all the time. You only need to use it when you get near the boundary of your safe set. Mm -hmm. So if you're flying in the middle of the room and you have a reasonable velo velocity, not too high, not too low, you can probably just let the learning algorithm do whatever it wants. So you let your reinforcement learning policy fly the quadcopter around the room. Mm -hmm. Now, if suddenly you find yourself flying downwards and you're getting pretty close to the floor and you're flying down pretty fast, there is where the control policy, the supervisory control policy might kick in and say, I'm not going to let you do this thing you're trying to do right now, because if I let you do that, I will no longer be able to guarantee the safety of the system. So instead, I'm going to override the learning controller just over here and just for as long as it's necessary to kick you back into the center of the bubble, the safety bubble that is the safe zone. So it's guiding you enough so you can't make bad decisions. Exactly. It's uh, you can think of it as a, as a supervisor yeah. or as you know, um, you know, like similar to how parents play. deal with kids yeah. when you're like you know letting your kid play, but you're not going to let your kid like go and, and start running off. Yeah. Into if it. they're riding a bike and you notice them t like learning to ride a bike and they're starting to tip over, you could grab the bike. Yeah, that's where you would grab them and <laughs> yeah, set them back on the right path and yep. let them keep trying. So something similar to that. Okay. Now this is really difficult to do in high-dimensional systems, right? So 
the curse of dimensionality is something that makes a lot of control problems very hard. It makes it difficult to give guarantees. It makes it difficult to find the optimal action to take, given that there are so many options. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, currently, um, the more accurate and general reachability methods that we have to deal with safety for dynamical systems are really limited to four or five dimensions in the state space. This means that you can deal, for example, with some relevant part of the dynamics of an autonomous vehicle, but, but maybe not the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, there are some systems where it's okay to decompose the dynamics into different parts. For yeah. example, in a quadcopter, it's fairly typical to consider vertical flight separately from horizontal flight. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that you can treat these two things separately, and then you can put them together, assuming that, of course, there's going to be some interaction. But that's something that you can deal with, with this notion of the disturbance of your model in the error. Because these algorithms are based on robust control, you can say, well, you know, I'm going to try and do something in vertical flight and something in horizontal flight, realizing that while I'm trying to control the horizontal component, my vertical efforts might be having an effect on my horizontal component as well. As long as these effects are not huge, I can probably simply account for them as a bounded disturbance mm -hmm. and then do the analysis separately and put it together and have it work in a, in a way that is reasonably efficient and guaranteed to be correct. What are some examples of systems that cannot be decomposed? In if this you way? have, that's a really good question. If you have, for example, an autonomous car, there the coupling between the modes is much more complex because the direction in, with the car, in which the car is moving, of course, affects how its position evolves over time. The speed at which it's moving also affects this and the velocities are all coupled through the inertia of the vehicle. So it's not something you can easily decompose. In fact, if you want to do a full analysis, you might even need to account for things like the suspension of the vehicle. And that is also not tire friction and things very complicated. Exactly. So for these systems, really, ideally, what we would like to be able to do is to reason holistically about the control of the entire dynamics of the system. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, if we're dealing with something like 20 some dimensions, 30 dimensions, and you know, and in a very complex system, in a very complex system, for example, if you even care about how different vehicles might interact with each other, mm -hmm. and this might in some cases be hard to decouple too, then you're just not going, going to you're not going to be able to keep track of it with the traditional methods that we have, with the traditional numerical methods that we have, because the number of grid cells that we would have in this n-dimensional grid would simply be larger than the number of bits that we have in any computer. So we were talking earlier and you mentioned that there are alternatives to grid cells. Would you talk a bit about that? Right. One of the, one of the real strengths of some of the recent machine learning methods that have been introduced in the last few years is that they are able to use powerful function approximators, in particular neural networks, to capture the structure that exists in data that lives in very high dimensional spaces using a relatively small number of parameters, definitely much smaller than the number of grid cells that you would need in order to capture something like a value function. For example, deep Q learning solves the problem of finding the value function for an optimal control problem through repeatedly experiencing episodes of the system's evolution under different types of control actions. Yeah. But instead of doing this by finding the tabular values of every single 
intersection of state. Just I'm trying to make this a little bit clear. Q-learning is a reinforcement learning method. You use episodes in reinforcement learning to, um, you basically start in a state, go till some sort of end, the end of the episode, and then you update that way to update what, uh, find a policy that should be the way the agent should run. Okay. And it's often what we do is we discretize state space. And this is why we're talking about grid cells. And if you had a large state space, you could picture a lot of grid cells going in multiple dimensions. So like two dimensions is a 2D world and three dimensions would be like a 3D cube. (laughs) Four dimensions, you would get into a hypercube, a tesseract. And then as as the number of dimensions grows, the number of grid cells that you have just simply blows up at at an incredibly quick rate. Definitely. So alternatives to grid cells, as you're saying. So an alternative to the grid cell approach you can think of a numerical grid as an extremely inefficient function approximator mm-hmm. where you're just brute forcing your way through the shape of the function by taking regular uh, intervals. A regu- exactly, regular intervals of the value of the functions, uh, uh, value of the function mm-hmm. and you store in, every every diff- in every different every direction. Yeah. And you're storing all the values. Instead of that, you might have better ways of capturing what the shape of the function is and how it, how it evolves in all of the different how it varies in all of the different dimensions. Mm-hmm. So fundamentally, this is what a function approximator like a neural network is able to do. Mm-hmm. And you know, you have all of these universal approximation theorems that tell you see that tell you that if you have a sufficiently large number of uh, units in your network, then you'll be able to capture a vast class of functions of continuous functions uh, to an arbitrary degree of precision. Yep. And so just to make this a little bit more concrete, even still, uh, a very simple example, if we were to have x squared as a way of representing something, if we were to have discrete values and we were to do it at every single number, it would be 1, 2, 4, 8, like this. And we could have all the values and we could make it a really fine resolution. So it's half number steps or half full number steps or something like this. Or we could just say x squared. We could just say x squared. In this case, the function approximator would only need a single parameter, which would be the weight of one for the term x squared, and we would be done. But maybe there's a slightly more subtle function that looks like x squared with some small deviations around it. But it turns out that maybe with a term for a parameter for x squared and a couple of other parameters for functions that allow us to approximate this more complicated function Mm -hmm. quite accurately, we would also be done without the need for this extremely fine-grained resolution. Yes, which takes a lot of memory and everything Exactly. Else. It takes memory, it takes computation time, it just makes... Yes, if you're updating all of them and everything. Gotcha. Okay, so using a neural network is generating this expressive way of describing what a safe set should be or the safe area. So something that we've been recently interested in is can we exploit the same types of... Uh, of function approximators that are used in something like reinforcement learning, for example, in Q-learning, also in policy gradient methods, to capture the structure of other kinds of control problems, other kinds of optimal control problems that go beyond this notion of sum of discounted rewards. To some extent, a limitation of reinforcement learning is that in its basic formulation, it considers an agent who is interacting with the world and for every action that the agent takes in the world, it sees a transition of the world state and it gets a reward. What the agent is trying to do in the reinforcement learning problem is it's trying to maximize the sum of rewards over time, mm-hmm. typically with a discount factor that makes 
makes it care less about what's going to happen far in the future than it does about what's going to happen uh, fairly soon. Now, it turns out that there are, there are other classes of problems, sometimes very relevant problems, such as safety, that cannot be captured by something like the sum or the average of rewards over time. For example, suppose that you care about never coming into collision with a wall. You could try to do something like adding your distances to the wall. That's really not going to do the trick because if, if you think of something like your average distance to the wall, even if you hit the wall, your average is probably going to be positive because most of the time you're not hitting the wall. Yeah. On the other hand, you could say, well, no, I'm just going to penalize you really strongly for hitting the wall. But then you're going to have a problem with sparsity of rewards. You're only very seldom going to experience a collision with a wall. Mm. Maybe you won't experience it for a very long time. Maybe you'll forget what it was like to experience a collision with the world. And so there are, there are problems with trying to formulate something like safety in a framework that is not naturally ad adapted or adjusted to it. Mm. On the other hand, there is a very important class of optimal control problems that tries to maximize the minimum of a function over time. Just going back a little bit. So not adapted to it, you mean that it's like we're coming up so in the case that you're describing, it's like we're coming up with features. What I was talking about was, regardless of whether you're using a neural network or right. whether you're using a grid or some other sort of, uh, of uh, data structure or yeah. method to represent the problem, in reinforcement learning, you typically assume that what the agent is trying to do, the objective function that it's trying to, in this case, maximize, has the form of a sum of rewards over time. Oh, I see. And as it turns out, there are very important problems where the objective of the agent cannot be readily expressed in this form. For example, there are cases where the agent doesn't care about what happens as an average or as a sum over time, but rather what is the worst, what is the worst value of something that I'm going to reach at any point in time. Mm -hmm. For example, if I care about not hitting a wall, I don't care about the average distance to the wall, I care about the minimum distance to the wall. Sure. So if the minimum distance to the wall is zero or even negative, if I hit it you know, hard enough that I penetrate it, yeah. then that is, that is a terrible outcome in this case for the safety problem, even if on average, when you do the sum of discounted rewards over time, yeah, uh, we find that we have a pretty, pretty large Probably. average distance. Yeah. So instead, we need to be able to deal in some cases with problems that have a different form. For example, mm -hmm. for the safety case, the minimum of, of some function over time. So in this case, it's not really a reward anymore. We have an agent that is trying to learn to interact better with its environment, mm -hmm. but it's not getting rewards over time. Rather, it's just measuring the value of something that it cares about. For example, something like a distance to failure modes. And it's trying to perhaps stay as clear of failure modes as it can over time. So instead, it's uh, you're inverting the problem, basically, to find a boundary that is unsafe. You're trying to find the boundary of where of it where safety lies. Safe. Yeah, Maybe. I wouldn't I, I wouldn't necessarily say that you're inverting your problem. You're simply uh -huh. you're simply looking at a different class of objective. Yes. So, one thing that we're trying to do in this uh, recent work is think about whether we can get the best of the two worlds and be able to reason about problems that are well formulated and to some extent well studied from optimal control. Mm -hmm. but that are very hard to scale because of the inherent complexity of the problem and the dimensionality of the systems that we want to apply them to. And on the other hand, the extremely expressive and powerful and to some extent efficient 
methods that exist in reinforcement learning uh, and in machine learning where you can use function approximators to capture structure in very high dimensional spaces. So what we're interested in doing is, could we use, can we use the efficient techniques from reinforcement learning to allow a system to reason competently about safety problems in high dimensional systems? Now, this is not the same thing as to say we're going to take the system, deploy it in the real world and expect it to learn about safety from scratch. This is probably something that's not going to work well. And for something like that, we need something like the earlier problem that we were talking about, where we need to have some sort of supervisor. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, allowing the system to learn to reason about safety is also a very important problem because you can start with a supervisor that comes from perhaps a model that a human came up with, mm -hmm. that an engineer designed and said, okay, you can try to use this thing as a reasonable notion of safety. But of course, because the world is complex and because the model that you came up with at the beginning might have flaws, might not be perfect, perhaps it's too conservative in some parts and not conservative enough in others, you of course want to be able to incorporate data from the real world into your notion of safety. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, in order, to, in order to be able to do this efficiently, you need to be able to reason about high dimensional problems. So that is where we think that there is a lot to be gained from the kinds of methods that exist in reinforcement learning. Mm -hmm. Now, you can actually use these methods from reinforcement learning in a simulation of the world, which is basically based on a model that you have a, of your dynamics. Mm -hmm. So you could, you could do essentially the same type of analysis that you would have done offline with a, with a dynamical model of your system if you had been able to use Hamilton-Jacobi analysis on a large grid and remind me what that was. This was this, which is the part where you grid up your state space and try to reason about safety using optimal control and dynamic programming at every instant in time, going backwards in time. Yes. But instead, using function approximators and possibly simulating different episodes of your dynamics when your dynamics are difficult, perhaps difficult to invert uh, and to and to put into a dynamic programming into a full dynamic programming framework. Mm -hmm. So what you can do there is you can use offline reinforcement learning in your simulation to do the same kind of safety analysis that you would have done based on your model. I always find it funny that there's an ambiguity when people use the term model-free for reinforcement learning. Because often people run reinforcement learning, often people run model-free reinforcement learning in a simulated environment, where of course that simulation of the environment is in itself based on a model of the dynamics of the world. Of course, the method itself by which the system is acquiring the value function or the policy is not explicitly accounting for the model, but it is certainly based on simulations and experiences that are coming directly from the existence of this model. And if you want to apply a fully model-free reinforcement learning paradigm, that is funny. Yeah, you're then right. you have to go out into the real world and, and try it out there. But this, of course, is going to take extremely long because you can't simulate quickly. You have to actually go and test things out in the environment. Yep. And of course, you have the safety issue, which is how can you make sure that a policy that you're learning and deploying on the fly as you go is going to stay safe over time? And, you know, as we, and we, as we've said, there are things that you can do about it, but it's certainly something, it's certainly a concern that you have to have. So 
Model 3 is always, I think, something that you should take with a grain of salt, because in practice, I expect that any type of reinforcement learning method that can be expected to work reliably in practice will, at one point or another, be using a model of the world. So what we're trying to do is essentially perhaps use model-free, quote-unquote, um, methods to learn safety properties of the system, but doing this based on models that we can have of the dynamics of the system, perhaps robust models, mm -hmm. in the same way that we would have done it if instead of reinforcement learning methods, we had used something like the traditional Hamilton-Jacobi methods that exist in control theory. Mm -hmm. In summary, you take a system and then you're going to compute some sort of safe set with it that's going to be described by an expressive function approximator, which is a neural network in this case. And then what you can do is, so that's in simulation, you can run it, and that's how you learn your safe set. And then you can take that somewhat conservative, very, I don't know, fast high dimensional function approximation, and you can put it on a physical platform, and the physical platform can then run and try to learn what it should be doing to optimize for some goal, but not break out of the safe set and destroy itself or hurt, harm something or have some bad, bad outcome. Do you that, agree? That's correct. And in fact, to be able to, in order to be able to say that the safety analysis that we obtain through these approximate methods from reinforcement learning is actually conservative, which is a property that we need if we want to be able to give safety, uh, safety guarantees. There is some additional analysis that needs to happen because, of course, the approximate function might not be exactly uh, the correct shape of the safe set. Mm -hmm. However, there are some things that we can do. If you have a simulator that you trust, perhaps with a robust model of your model error, you can, in fact, quantify... What does it mean, robust? Robust means that there is some... In this sense. Robust, in this case, means that you're accounting for some bounded amount of error yeah. between what your model is predicting and what can happen in reality in the physical system. Robust control theory is really a fairly large field that is in fact what, ha what has allowed us to use imperfect models of the world to control physical and really complex systems that we have built in the real world. Mm -hmm. yeah. Robust optimal control is used very commonly in uh, automotive engineering, for example. Mm -hmm. um, where you are perhaps trying to control, say, the steering of a vehicle, and, and to some extent you're trying to reason about the contact between your tires and the ground. Uh, and you don't have a perfectly exact model of that, but you can reason about how far off reality is going to be with respect to what your model is predicting. Mm -hmm. And so you can protect, you can guard yourself against that uncertainty and against that error if you can give a bound on how far off that is. Gotcha. So you account for the uncertainty and this gives us a robust model and then we can use this robust model. Precisely. Even when you have a model that you think is robust, and this brings us to some of the other work that we've been working on, that, that we've been doing and that we're very interested in, you still need to reason about whether your model is performing well currently in the real world. Because it could be that you had a model of the world that works perfectly well and you've tested it exhaustively, for example, you know, driving on dry pavement, on dry terrain, but it turns out that there's a day when it rains and maybe you weren't 
you know, maybe you, you've never tested your model under a rainy terrain or under a wet terrain, or perhaps one day you find that the uh, one of your sensors is not operating properly, and suddenly you're not getting the kind of information that you wanted to get. And so you need to have your system adapt as it goes and be able to reason about whether or not it can trust its model. Mm-hmm. So for example, one of the things that we really care about is how do we keep autonomous systems safe when they're interacting with people? This is a particularly important case for safety because at the end of the day, when we care about the safety of a system, typically it's because we care about the safety of people that are somehow directly or, inter- or indirectly affected by the system. An evident case of this is if you have a robot navigating, you know, in near proximity. Yeah. yeah. So a robot in a mall or something. A like robot this. in a mall, perhaps. A self-driving car, any, self-driving anything. Car, anything where the robot's big robot. enough to damage people or buildings or the car. Right. And in these cases, precisely, safety becomes particularly tricky because through this interaction, with this interaction, with this interaction comes a lot of uncertainty. And the outcome of safety is no longer something that depends solely on the autonomous system's behavior. Now it depends on the interaction between the autonomous system and the human, Whatever the human the being or the, the human collective. The or yeah. the other agents in the environment. That are affecting the world in some way and moving around and things. Yeah, exactly. And so now the robot needs to reason about how its actions will couple with the actions of other agents. And in particular... Humans are an especially hard-to-model part of the world because, well, we all know the humans are complicated. And if they're complicated for for each other, you can imagine they're going to be very complicated for a robot that is trying to reason about uh, the physics of the world and what is going on and how to stay safe in this case. So in the last few years, roboticists have been able to achieve some pretty cool interactive behaviors through using predictive models of what people might do. Typically, you don't want to use a deterministic prediction of the human because it's very hard to have a model that can be that reliable. And that would mean no randomness. That would mean no randomness. You know what the human is going to do. Exactly. That would mean that the robot is absolutely certain what the person is going to do. Mm -hmm. And that is very rarely, if ever, a reasonable assumption for the robot to make. So it's very common for robots to use probabilistic models to predict what people might do. What are people likely or unlikely to do? And in particular, there is a class of predictive models that have been used, which are called noisily rational models, where the human is expected to behave to some extent like an agent that is trying to optimize some utility function. The robot can try to learn what that utility function is by observing the human over time. Mm -hmm. And the robot will then expect that the human will be likelier to take actions that are reasonable and effective for that utility than actions that are completely useless. And utility utility. is coming from economics. It's optimizing happiness or whatever it might be, or function. These utilities, Uh, yes. It's like a cost function and reinforcement learning or anything, but for people and the time. You can think of it in in that way. And this, of course, is not to state that humans necessarily have such a function in their heads, but it's simply stating that pretending as though they have this sort of a, this sort of a utility that is supposed to be encoding something like their intent yep. or their current objective is often a useful way to make predictions that, that 
perform well mm -hmm. in practice. The problem, of course, is that even when you're using these predictions, there are always going to be cases where your model simply doesn't capture something that the human cares about. So suppose that you have a model of how human pedestrians move around inside of a room. You've determined that there are two doors in the room and people tend to go to those doors pretty often. There's also a table in the center and there is a window where people sometimes go just to look outside. And so you normally have a fairly good probabilistic model of where people tend to go. But now one day a bee flies into the room and suddenly your model is completely useless because people are looking at the bee, they're getting nervous, they're walking in random directions, suddenly the bee gets close and the person starts running away from it and also chaotically walking in every direction. So you definitely don't want to trust this model that you've learned and that used to work pretty well when your model is clearly not doing a good job under the current conditions. So what you need to do is you need your, maybe that's a bit of a strong statement. One thing that you can try to do to mitigate this is to have your robot reason about how well its model is performing right now. To have the robot be critical of its model and to not necessarily trust it blindly by an equal amount all the time. So that's some of the work that's some of the work that we've been doing recently. It turns out that if you have a noisily rational model, these models pretend, these models assume that people take actions with exponentially more probability, the more efficient these actions are for the current utility function that the robot is expecting the human to be maximizing, mm -hmm. to be roughly maximizing. Yeah. The sharpness of this distribution is typically given by what is called the inverse temperature parameter, which goes in the exponential. And essentially, as you have a, when you have a very large value of this parameter, the human's actions tend to concentrate very heavily around the best possible actions. Uh, the like best possible, it's essentially, it becomes a, a sharp maximizer. Whereas as the value of the parameter goes to zero, the human starts to become uniformly random. Yep. It'll take all actions with equal probability. And this comes from behavioral economics, correct? This is a model that is used in behavioral econo economics and has been since introduced into cognitive science and robotics mm -hmm. uh, quite extensively in the last few years. Yeah, very interesting. Okay. There's a lot, of, as it turns out, there is a lot that has been said about how people make decisions. Uh, often, in fields like behavioral economics, mathematical psychology, cognitive science. And there is much that we can learn from those kinds of models and we can incorporate them into the decision-making processes of our autonomous systems mm -hmm. to allow them to more efficiently interact with people. Yes. And, and, to the, and, yeah, and to the particular uh, you know, problem, uh, problem that right. occupies us in this case, which is having systems be more safe around mm -hmm. people. Sure. Yeah. Let's call this inverse temperature parameter beta. So the robot can now reason about what this beta currently is in light of the current behavior of the human. Now, traditionally, this beta has sometimes been called the rationality coefficient, mm -hmm. but I think that is somewhat unfair to the human because it's not really describing whether this human is rational enough or behaving quite irrationally. It's really describing, it's really quantifying to what extent your model is a good descriptor of the human's yeah. behavior. It could be that the human is perfectly rational, mm -hmm. but with respect to a 
utility function that you know nothing about. Yes. It could be that the human just saw an object that, that they want to go and pick up, and the robot sensors aren't even able to detect this object. So, you know, this is not the human. Mm -hmm. It's The way we put this is, whenever your model is not able to predict what the human is doing, it doesn't mean you have a bad human. <laughs> it means you have a bad model. <laughs> so we prefer to think of this beta parameter as a confidence measure mm -hmm. uh, of how much the robot should trust its model given what the human is doing right now. And so what we do is we keep track of the robot's belief over this parameter as a function of time, as a, as a hidden state over time. And by doing this in an online way, the robot is able to very quickly adapt its predictions whenever the human doesn't seem to be following the model accurately. So it basically goes and adjusts this confidence parameter and it says, I have very little confidence in my model of what the human will be doing, therefore I shouldn't be making decisions based on my model. Implicitly, that's what happens. The immediate, things that, the immediate thing that happens when the robot drops its confidence is that suddenly predictions become a lot less structured because the human's probability of different actions starts to approach more something like, or becomes more spread out and starts to approach more something like a uniform distribution. Yep, so we have no idea what the human will do, basically. In the limit, once you lose complete confidence, yes, you have no idea what the human might do, so they might do anything. And this now allows the robot to think about safety in a probabilistic sense. So then what would the robot do when it realizes that its model is bad? Well, there's different... This, this now depends on the concrete case that occupies you. Yes. Well, but for example, if you have an example of the robot trying to navigate around a human, yep. if you're not sure where the human might go, you might just need to assume that the human could go anywhere. Wait. And so you just wait or you stay away from the human. You consider the worst case if you get to a certain point. Or in, in fact, you can continue to use the probability distribution. It's now that this probability distribution is going to be much more cloudy and blurry. And you will need to account for the possibility that the human might go straight, might turn, might suddenly start jumping around. Yep. If you have no idea what they might do, then of course you're going to have to account for more possibilities. Gotcha. Okay, so if we had a pretty good model of how humans walk, and you say they're pretty much going to walk within some angle of where they're heading. Now they start changing directions quickly. Then what you do is you take your model and you say, I'm not going to trust it as much. And then you can operate with the, hum the belief that the human might change direction anytime. And you would kind of get a probability distribution of where the human might go. Exactly. What we end up with is we have a probability distribution of where, of where the human might be Yes. at any given point in time. So we can say, well, you know, given that the human is currently here, assume that we, we assume that we can detect the human's current position, mm -hmm. and we say, well, where will the human be one second from now, two seconds from now, three seconds from now? Of course, we can be quite a bit more certain about where the human is going to be in one second than about where the human is going to be in five seconds. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. What, um, like making this concrete, have you done work in this direction? We have. So one particular... One particular experiment that we ran was we had a human in the room walking around. We allowed we brought different people into the lab. Uh, sometimes it was um, ourselves. Sometimes it was some of the professors that we worked with. And we would just have them walk around, typically to a number of uh, predefined goals that we had described. And the one thing that we did was 
in some of the experiments, we had um, kind of a pretend coffee spill in the middle of the room. And in this case, we told our, our humans to just walk around the spill so that they wouldn't, you know, so that they wouldn't get their shoes dirty. Now, the robots, the quad rotor in this case, didn't know about the coffee spill. So whenever humans started to deviate from their roughly straight line paths in order to avoid the spill, the robot would quickly realize that something was going on. The robot didn't know about the coffee spill, but it did know that there was something that was leading the human to not follow the predictions that the robot would have otherwise made. When this happened, the robot very quickly decreased its confidence in the model and produced a much more uncertain distribution of where the human might be in the following instance. Mm -hmm. As a result of which, it naturally replanned its trajectory to stay away from the human, to leave more margin, given that it wasn't really sure, <coughs> it wasn't really sure where the human was going to go next. Gotcha. Very cool. And what is your, like, how are you thinking to continue this line of work? Where do you go from here? So at the end of the day, what we need to have, I think, is systems that are able to reason about safety, often with models of the world, with models of people in the world, but at the same time with the, with the acknowledgement that these models are just that, models. They're not perfect representations of, of the world. But there is a reason that we use them, which is that it's impossible to reason about the world with anything other than a simplified representation of it. Mm -hmm. Which is the model. Which is the model. There is, uh, I think, a very important, uh, a very important phrase that George Box said. George Box was a control theorist. Uh, he said, "All models are wrong." but some models are useful. And at the end of the day, that is exactly what engineers use models for. We acknowledge that they're not a perfect description of the world, but we also think that we can do pretty useful things with them if we treat them properly as what they are. Now, when it comes to reasoning about safety, the mathematical guarantees that you can give about safety are guarantees based on your model. And therefore, if your model is completely incorrect, those guarantees go away. So in a very direct way, your guarantees are only as good as your model of the world. And this means that the system should be able to reason about how well its model is describing reality as it is being deployed. This will probably change over time because it could be that the model works extremely well in some circumstances and then suddenly degrades in other circumstances and then goes work, it goes back to working well. So the robot's conservativeness and the way the robot reasons about what safety guarantees are possible and how conservative it should be, should be something that adapts over time. Also, the model should be able to improve over time. If the robot is experiencing a lot of evidence, there is no reason that it wouldn't be able to update its model and therefore its notion of safety as it goes. And there's a lot to be done here. On the one hand, you need to be able to reason about when your model is trustworthy and what that what the implications of that are to your safety guarantees as you go. On the other hand, you need to be able to close the loop between safety and learning so that you're able to improve your notion of safety as you experience more about the world. And at the same time, you need to make sure that whatever kind of learning or optimization you're robot or your autonomous system is running over time is 
at every point informed by safety so that it will never make a decision that it should have known was not guaranteed to be safe. And I think in order to get these systems to work, we really need to reconcile the different views that exist on robotics from the theoretical analysis and control theory and from the uh, practical analysis that comes from reinforcement learning and the machine learning community. I think both are needed. On the one hand, if you want to reason about safety, you need to be able to extract the properties from the structure of the world, which is best captured by dynamical models of the type that are used in control theory. On the other hand, in order for these models to be meaning meaningful, or rather, in order for these guarantees to be meaningful, we need to be able to validate them against reality. And the way to do that is to use all the data-driven analysis that comes from machine learning and reinforcement learning in particular. And we think that by combining these two analyses, the, these two analyses into a single kind of framework, robots will have a better chance at staying safe. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's the end of today's interview. There's plenty more, though, on our website at robohub.org forward slash podcast, where you can also find more information about supporting us by becoming a patron. As a podcast entirely run by volunteers who freely give their time to record, edit, write and publish the content, we rely on support from our listeners to enable us to keep bringing you the latest from robotics labs and conferences around the world. So if you can spare just a few dollars a month, the cost of a cup of coffee, consider supporting us and learn more at robohop.org forward slash podcast. We'll be back in two weeks time. Until then, goodbye. Learn with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. <laughs>